I want to talk this morning on the theme of renewing our practice. How do we keep our sense of growth and practice and uh, exploration and discovery alive? And I want to do that with particular reference to my own uh, retreat. I'll tell some stories because I just have come back from several weeks on retreat, and retreats are wonderful ways to renew one's sense of practice. In a way also, I think that it's a very uh, important and ancient kind of community practice that someone who's kind of gone off to the wilderness comes back and gives a slideshow. <laughs> very ancient practice. <laughs> but not, you know, not showing the slides to the point where the neighbors and family get too antsy. So, <laughs> so I'll, I'll be brief. And I actually don't have any real slides because we, generally on retreats one doesn't take slides. But there, there are a lot of internal slides that, I'll, that I will show. But I think it's actually a very important uh, community function, like I say, that when, when any of us goes away or goes through some kind of maybe an ordeal or goes traveling and, and really comes up with important insights. I think it's really important to share that with one's network, to share that with one's family and friends. And it's a beautiful way that we all, you know, when one of us goes off and explores, uh, we all can share in that. So I just invite that, that reflection for your, your own journeys and your own uh, explorations. So I was on retreat probably about two and a half weeks in Colorado. I kind of left the friendly confines of Spirit Rock and ventured off into the mountains in Colorado and did two retreats with, um, actually with Tibetan teachers. Uh, with uh, Sotni Rinpoche, who teaches here from time to time, and also with uh, Sultram Elioni. I was at two centers, one in uh, Crestone, Colorado, right up against the Sangre de Cristo Mountains going above, many of them going above 14,000 feet. And then I was at a place called Taramandala in southwestern Colorado near Pagosa Springs. In fact, I was just around there two days ago. <laughs> so it's pretty, pretty alive. And Taramandala was founded by Sultram Alioni, who is a wonderful teacher who will be here actually in a few weeks. And her, a lot of her focus is the sacred feminine. She's been a very important teacher, particularly for women. It was very beautiful to see particularly a lot of younger women in their 20s and 30s just were gravitating there in really significant numbers, that there's some way that they were being uh, spoken to. And there's, it's, a very, it's a very beautiful <coughs> center. And um, at the retreat there, it was kind of like our meta-retreats, about 80% women which is interesting. And I'll, I'll come back to some of those themes about the sacred feminine or the sacred, what we could call the sacred masculine, because I think very, and something I also might like to explore in, in a series here. I think that would be very, very uh, powerful and interesting. And so the, the retreats were um, in the mountains. I was, uh, the last retreat, uh, I was camping for eight days off in the forest at 8,000 feet, you know, sleeping under the stars with no one very close, kind of in the, in, in the mountains there. And um, 
the practices were uh, Dzogchen practices, which, which uh, I'll talk about near the end of the talk, are very similar in some ways to, to kind of the further reaches of mindfulness and Vipassana practice. It really is about cultivating this very, very wide open <coughs> awareness, which actually is not trying to make anything happen, but notices where there's any contraction or fixation. And the idea in that practice is that there's something about our very sense of awareness, our very open, spacious clarity and luminosity of mind, which is linked to the sacred. In fact, which is, for many people, is an expression of the sacred when it's refined. And part of what we're doing is really refining that luminous sense of awareness, which is also linked with compassion. And in the teachings of the Buddha, in the Pali, Southeast Asian traditions, it's also said that there's this deep quality of our being, which is sometimes called the brightly shining state of mind and heart. And it's actually linked with metta. So it's linked with the heart and also linked with clarity. And that was the practice that, was, that we were doing for these weeks and really studying that more. So I'll come back to that near the end, but just I wanted to give situate you. So I was in the mountains. We were, you know, Tibetans do chanting, and they one of the one of the interesting <coughs> practices that they do more than we do that I think is very helpful is that they work a lot with motivation. And in fact, they invite everyone before a talk to come back to that deeper motivation with which I started the sitting, you know, at nine o'clock. So I'd invite you right now to listen to the talk, remembering your deeper motivation. What is your deeper motivation for practice? And just take a moment to be with that. And so I can also do that. I can remember my deeper motivation and, and stay with that. So I wanted to talk about this theme of how we renew our practice and, the and tell some stories from my, my retreat that will help fill that out. And so it's, it's particularly an interesting question, kind of, uh, we could say, how do we, how do we uh, keep renewing our practice in a society which is very busy. And I want to touch on maybe four different themes uh, that, that bring this out. How to renew our practice and some of the things that I explored and learned. Um, so the first is the theme I want to say, how do we touch our deeper motivation in a distracted society? In, a, in an everyday life which is often very distracted. How do we keep a in touch with mo deeper motivation? And so for me, coming out of these deep, these wonderful days in the mountains. And then I went on Sunday and visited with a friend who lived nearby. And I saw my first newspaper in a few weeks. And I learned that, um, I learned what, that um, Sarah Palin <laughs> is the vice presidential nominee for the Republicans. I learned about Hurricane Gustav. I learned about Joe Biden. You know, all within, you know, and I kind of left it at that. <laughs> but, you know, then. So there are these, the, the world starts to come in. I noticed that. I come back home two days ago, 
And I actually didn't start uh, looking at emails, but yesterday in the afternoon I started opening up emails. There were 300 of them. <laughs> you know, um, most of them personal. <laughs> you know, how do I look at that? You know, um, you know, I can feel all the pushes and pulls coming in. How to keep that sense of the flow of the retreat um, strong? How to act wisely in this in this culture? that is um, challenging. It was actually a theme of the retreat, which was how do we work with, the, with sort of the cultural pulls that in many ways do keep us distracted, that do keep us, and that get, not just keep us distracted, but sometimes keep us kind of overstimulated and out of balance in terms of our minds and our bodies. You know, I could just see, you know, all the all these stimuli coming in and and just hearing the news and doing this and trying to get from the East Bay to Spirit Rock this morning and going through all this traffic and construction on White's White's Hill and all this stuff. And it's really it really is a challenge to to do that. And I'll talk more about how to work with that in a moment. But but for the the first theme I want to explore is how do we stay in touch with that with that deeper motivation. Because it's, for me, when I go on retreat, the deeper motivation comes more to the surface. You know, and it's something that, that, you know, in a way the, a lot of the details and habitual patterns of daily life are not there in the same way. It takes a while for them to fill out. And for me, you know, I, uh, one, of my thing, one of my challenges is not to get too busy. And so actually it was a lot of energy just to go off on retreat, as I'm sure it is for many of you. you know, and I actually slept two hours the night before. I had to, I had to leave. You know, I, I got picked up at home at 4 a.m. <laughs> you know, by the, by the, because my, my flight was at 6. You know, and so I, I got to sleep that night at 2 a.m. <laughs> you know, and this may be familiar. You know, there's just a lot to take care of. And how do we... How do we, uh, with all these details, how do we stay in touch with our priorities? And you might ask yourself, how do you, how do you touch that deeper motivation more continually? Retreats are wonderful for revealing that. So it's very, I, th I find it really crucial to have time to go deeper in whatever way. For many of us, that's retreats. For some of us, it might be to be in the wilderness or just that daily practice. It's to listen to the silent voice and continually come back to that because our lives are actually over pretty quickly. You know, it's true. They're over pretty quickly and I think we don't want to be there at the end of our life saying, I attended to too many superficial details. You know, and so it's actually very um, much an issue to ask ourselves what we want most deeply. We might ask a question, is my life too busy? Is there something I need to let go of that can let me live more fully? And of course, it's not the being busy that's the issue. It's that there's a tendency when we're busy that we get distracted. I don't think that's necessarily has to be that way. I think we can be very busy and very present and fully in touch with our motivation. It's just that that's hard, <laughs> you know. And so this question, 
what do I most deeply want? Can I imagine myself five years from now and ask, how would I have really most deeply wanted to lead these last five years? Am I in touch with what's most important to me? Is there a way that I need to restructure my life to let go of something? And for me, these, these were very real. As I mentioned, being busy, overly busy at times, it's a real crucial issue for me to say, what do I need to let go of? And I got clear. <laughs> my list of what to, what to let go of, it's not what to let go of so that I, there can be that more that cultivation of depth. And for me, it's what surfaced was, again, this love of uh, retreat practice and having the Dharma yet more at the center of my life. You know, having this cultivation of learning and growth and cutting through the areas where we are bound, where there's suffering, and really, really doing that. Simplicity, really, really crucial. That's why retreats can be very helpful, because it simplifies. You know, I notice myself sometimes coming back to my tent, the habit of wondering whether there were some emails waiting for me. <laughs> <laughs> if you've been on retreat, you probably know this. You probably, you know, or you go back to your room at Spirit Rock and your kind of mind just says, I wonder if there are any phone messages. <laughs> you know, or, you know, some, I found myself sometimes uh, reaching in my pocket to get the key so I could open up my tent. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and so the simplicity is really, really important to find that simplicity. I'm, I'm really speaking for myself, but we can ask ourselves, do I have the simplicity that helps me really to focus deeply on what is important? Kierkegaard said once, purity of heart is to will one thing. And simplicity can give us a lot of power. Again, simplicity doesn't mean that we're not necessarily busy. It means that there's a focus. It means that our lives are connected, that rather than one part of me here, one part of me there. And this is a life, really a life journey, to find that kind of focus and simplicity. One of the teachings, one of the core teachings that we worked with in the Dzogchen practice was a beautiful, very simple teaching which was supposedly the last testament of a teacher named Garab Dorje, who was one of the founders of this whole lineage of Dzogchen, which is, translates as the Great Perfection. It's often taken to be the pinnacle of the whole Tibetan path. And I think it has parallels with sort of the pinnacle of the Vipassana teachings. And this teaching is really about simplicity. The teachings go like this, basically, Recognize your most basic nature. And then decide on one point, which is to stabilize your touch, basically with the, that state of love, awareness, and compassion. And third, practice so you have deeper and deeper confidence in that quality of your being. And that's it. Those are the full instructions for practice. <laughs> you know, recognize your nature, 
decide on one point, that is to, to stabilize it more, and develop confidence. That's it. And so there's this beautiful simplicity that can come. Again, we can, our lives can be complicated, but can we be guided so that I'm, it may be that I'm, for a period of time, I, in whatever I'm doing, I say, can I act out of love? You know, can I have presence? Can I have mindfulness? I think we need, we need something like this. And we can ask ourselves what really helps us to keep that deeper motivation. What helps me to do that? It may be to really um, establish that daily practice. It may be to really feel connected. I think we can each ask ourselves, what would help me to be more in touch with my deeper motivation? Are there some adjustments that I can make? Might be to talk with a good friend once a week. You know, it might be to do a practice. I love the practice that I've done for a lot of time of doing a Sabbath, both a Western and an Asian practice that is totally designed to take us back to our deeper motivation in a more extended way once a week. It doesn't have to be a whole day. A lot of people I work with do a half-day Sabbath. But it's this way of part of our work seems to be to create a structure of our lives that supports us. We may not all have that. We may have structures that have us overly busy. Is there, are there adjustments I need to make? And then it's to come back to intentions, to come back to that sense of uh, remind, reminding ourselves of that deeper motivation. And so to have a practice when you sit every morning, to just say, let me touch my deeper motivation this morning, even if it's imperfectly for 30 seconds. Even if I sit there and it doesn't feel as strong as I'd like it, but we invoke that. That's all we can do. And so we, or we can work with that deeper intention during the day. This is partly a response to that question about mindfulness during the day. Working with intention can be a powerful, powerful tool. Before you're going to a meeting, take 30 seconds or a minute and touch that deeper motivation. I'm going to totally get my own way. <laughs> <laughs> Just joking. <laughs> Uh, but it could be, I will, it might be, I will act with uh, both strength and a willingness to listen to the other person. So the motivation doesn't have to totally mean we don't act strongly or forcefully for certain things that are important for us, but it's to frame it all within the context of what's most deep, which is typically developing wisdom and compassion and expressing that. So can we do that before a given activity? You're going to a difficult family gathering. In the car before you go in your relative's home, set your motivation. Even if you think it'll go out the window in about 30 <laughs> seconds, you know, to work with that motivation. Or if you feel yourself out of things in a meeting, in a gathering, take a break, reestablish your motivation. I'm very fond of recommending bathroom breaks. Mm -hmm. Bathroom breaks are a key technical tool for developing <laughs> deeper motivation. <laughs> Not to be underestimated. 
and you can stay there a long time because <laughs> it's really socially awkward to make comments about how long you were in the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe one of the contributions of Western Dharma to the <laughs> historical repertoire of tools and practices. A second area that is very interesting in terms of renewing our practice that was actually a theme on the retreat is the place of our own psychological and emotional healing in relationship to this practice of mindfulness and cultivating wisdom and compassion. It's a really interesting theme that we could actually talk about for many, many sessions. But it was something that was reflected on by the Tibetan teacher, Sodhi Rinpoche, because he found very interestingly that a lot of his students who had been practicing for 10 or 15 or even 20 years weren't going that deeply in meditation. And he attributed it to the fact that they had a lot of unworked out psychological, emotional, and actually bodily stuff. And so it's a very interesting question as how our work on our psychological, emotional, and even bodily issues relates to the deeper insights that are talked about in the tradition. It's a very, very interesting theme. And we explored that quite a bit. His conclusion was that people needed to do a certain amount of psychological and emotional healing before they could actually go very deeply in meditation. And that Westerners are screwed up in different ways than Asian people. <laughs> I could say that in a more compassionate way. <laughs> Let me say it this way. Let me say that they're, they're, for a lot of us, um, we do have wounds that in many cases may come from childhood, or may come from traumatic experiences. We also live in a culture which tends to make us very, very speedy. And even in Marin County, it happens. <laughs> have, you, have anyone noticed? <laughs> even for people who aren't part of the nine-to-five work life and are here on a Wednesday morning at, you know, in, in, the, in the middle of the morning, we still are, are very, very fast, but we, and we have, our, we have our woundedness, and we have to, in some ways, find ways to work with that. We can work with that using psychological tools. We can work with it using the practices of mindfulness and loving-kindness, which have a tremendous amount of healing capacities. We can really uh, start identifying more clearly some of our core patterns that keep us stuck or that keep us fixated, you know, some of which may be related to wounds. Over time, using a mixture of tools, those wounds can be healed. You know, some take longer than others. You know, and we can actually notice and work with our repetitive psychological patterns. You know, one, one of what the main emphases in the judgment work that, that I, I do with people is to start getting really attuned to my actually handful of repetitive patterns that keep me stuck. Could be judgment. It could be I do something and I just go into this nosedive in which I judge myself and I get in a funk and a bad mood for a few hours or a few days. And it's, a lot of it is beneath the level of consciousness often and so it's very hard sometimes to get out of it. You know what I'm talking about? This 
these, these, it could be a judgment, it could be uh, uh, a kind of anger that we're caught in for a period of time. It could be um, some kind of deep longing that for some quality of our being to emerge. And we have to really look at these patterns carefully uh, and find ways to um, notice them more carefully. We can be stuck in them for years. We can be stuck in them for days. And part of renewing our practice is to almost have a fresh look at our dominant patterns. And this might be the fear that was mentioned, or it might be judgment, it might be anger, it might be a kind of wanting, and so forth. And a, a big part of practice is actually to explore those and examine those. And um, in the Buddhist tradition, there's some beautiful stories of that, that uh, you know, there actually are a number of great practitioners who came out of very wounded places. It's, very, it's actually interesting. When you read the text, a lot of the great practitioners, a lot of the great yogis, are not these people who had this wonderful, exalted childhood like you might imagine the Dalai Lama to have had. You know, he kind of identified as a Dalai Lama early on, gets the best teaching, everyone more or less treats him as if he's a, a god prince of sorts, you know. And even with that, he has problems. He says, you know, I. I come from a part of Tibet where people are known to be irritable. <laughs> you know, so he still has to deal with that. He said, when I was a teenager, I was extremely irritable and, and you know, kind of a little bit nasty. You wouldn't, you wouldn't think, that's not the usual view of Dalai Lama, but, but he, you know, but even though, but others actually had much way more difficult times. One of the great stories that the Buddha uh, told was of one of his disciples named Angulimala, who was actually a serial killer. You know, I mean, and had these tremendous difficulties, and eventually, it's very interesting in terms of an approach to punishment, he joined the Sangha and basically worked through a lot of his past karma and became enlightened. It's interesting, you know, in our culture we would kill him probably. In the in that culture, he was seen as having, like everyone else, the potential for awakening. And with the right conditions, he was able to work through things. You know, there were other, one of the great and most beloved Tibetan teachers, Milarepa, also killed people and had to work through a lot of that, that karma. Others had a lot of losses. Some of you know the figure Deepama, it's a beloved teacher. Uh, who died just 15 years ago, who started her practice after she had gone through an incredible series of losses. And I think her husband had died, some of her family had died, and she was at her wit's end, and she discovered practice. And she just went really quickly to it and became deeply beloved. And so there is this, I think, inspiring history of finding a number of wounded practitioners who work through their wounds. And you know, in the shamanic tradition, we have this beautiful phrase that speaks about the wounded healer. And so working with one's wounds is this really important part of practice. Working with one's patterns, working with fear when it arises. And 
The story I was going to tell from my retreat concerns fear. And so here it was. The first night I was at this Taramandala place, and I had I wanted to be in a tent. And so I pitched my tent, and they told me it was actually about 10 feet where there had been uh, a series of bear attacks. <laughs> but I thought I'd stay there anyway. <laughs> and they did tell me that the bear had been caught. It was actually a rogue bear that had been gotten used to. It wasn't actually physically dangerous. There were black bears, which are really not really typically dangerous towards humans, not like grizzly bears. Uh, but they told me they had found the bear. It, was, it had got used to eating garbage at state parks, which made it just want to go looking for things in people's tents and in the habit of slashing people's tents and barging in. Which um, and so there and I was told that that bear had been found, and um, taken out of the area. Nonetheless, that first night, <laughs> <laughs> the first night I started to think about bears, and I thought, why did I do this? <laughs> this is some kind of macho thing, or what is what's going on here? And you know, and I noticed myself thinking about the bears that a bear might come in the night. And I said, I'll just, you know, I'll just breathe and get to sleep, you know. But actually, I didn't, I didn't, I found myself a little preoccupied by thinking about the bears, partly because it was my first night camping and I was new to the area. I didn't really know it. And, you know, you know how it is if you've been camping and you're a little on edge and, um, you know, the sound of a squirrel becomes the imminent arrival of a monstrous <laughs> bear. <laughs> anyway, so after a while, after a short time of this, I said, it's time to use my repertoire of practice. <laughs> and so I actually um, said, rationally, I knew there wasn't actually that much danger. There wasn't much danger, so I thought. And, but, Emotionally, you know, when survival is at stake, things get activated, right, in our being. And so I decided I am just going to do loving-kindness practice. Loving-kindness is actually designed as an antidote to fear. And so I started doing loving-kindness practice, and I said, the moment I, hear, I notice a bare thought, I'm going to go right to loving-kindness, like just a split second. And I did that for two or three hours. <laughs> I wasn't getting asleep. <laughs> I just continually went to the loving-kindness practice. And it was actually really inspiring. The key was noticing the repetitive thoughts right near the beginning. That's what mindfulness can do. That's what really helps with daily life and a response. Noticing when one, when one goes into a thought pattern which is not helpful. Noticing as soon as close to the beginning as it occurs, and then applying an antidote. And so I offer that as, as a, uh, a practice. Yeah? Can you just tell me, like, what, what would you say as far as your loving kindness practice? Well, loving kindness, I would just do my standard loving kindness practice for myself. I actually found it very helpful to start doing it towards others. So my loving kindness phrases are, may I be happy and contented. You know, staying there with the thoughts of the bear. 
May I be happy and contented. May I be um, safe and free from harm. May my body support me. May I be healthy and may my, as healthy as possible. May my body support me. May I, may I be free and live with ease. And I would do it towards myself. And I found doing it actually towards others, towards the second step is towards a mentor or a benefactor, someone who's been helpful with oneself, and third, towards a friend, and then towards a neutral person, then towards someone, a difficult person, then towards all beings. And I found actually as I did it towards, took it out of myself, it actually started to have a lot of power. And so using loving kindness like that in the moment and doing it uh, just wouldn't, you know, I, I would do it for a while, then I'd say, okay, let me just go to sleep, and then the bear, th bear thought. <laughs> What was that sound? <laughs> you know, and then, may I be happy and contented? And, and then just uh, continually going back to that. And I found, I, for whatever reason, I needed to do it for a few hours. It was actually, but the key was, the reason, uh, the connection I want to make with all of our practice is that the key is having an antidote and applying it as soon as possible after the, the difficult pattern arises. That becomes an incredible resource for practice. If we can do that, you know, and there's also a place for investigating the pattern and getting to know it better and so forth, but at a moment like that, in the middle of the night with bears possibly <coughs> coming any moment, uh, antidotes are helpful, something that actually transforms that practice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. My question is, do you shut off the thought with the antidote? Do you in this case, I, I was. I was basically saying, this arises, I'm going somewhere else. Again, there's a real place when we're balanced, and maybe it's not the middle of the night, or sometimes in the middle of the night, you, we can investigate the thought, because there's a tremendous value of actually being with it, investigating it. At that moment, I thought an antidote, which was actually just, it comes, and I say, I'm not going there. And that we can do with patterns of mind which we know may be uh, just take us to a bad place, maybe that have a lot of power and just take us somewhere that we're not, that's hard to get out of also. And so very, very helpful in those, in those situations. And I'll just mention one other thing and then, then open things up, but another, so, so I'll back up one second. I, I think some kind of way of working with our difficult patterns, what we might call our woundedness, to the extent that there is that. I think some kind of practice of that is really crucial for everyone. And I want to encourage that as another way to keep renewing practice. And it helps us to look at all this freshly, so we're not caught in it. And the last area I want to mention is, is also, in a parallel way, having a body-based practice. It was something we talked about a lot during the retreat, that for Westerners, our body energies tend to be all over the place. And in the Tibetan system, they use the model of what are called the subtle body energies, similar to what we find in yoga, talked about as prana, or in acupuncture and tai chi, the Chinese systems. And interestingly, the Tibetan teacher, Sakni Rinpoche, says, when I look at Westerners, their, their um, subtle body energies are way up, and it's very hard for them actually to settle. Kind of, we're out of our bodies, we're very stimulated, everything's kind of racing around. And he said there's a tremendous need to settle that energy, and to bring it down so it's more grounded in the earth. 
It's a very interesting theme that we explored. And I know that's, for myself, over several years, part of my own training consisted of grounding my body energies much more fully so that I could actually, I did practices of being with my body in awareness for about two years and also practices of connecting with my the energy of the center, which in, um, is called hara in Japanese practices. And it's really, uh, it's a practice that was worked with at this retreat to somehow bring one's energies lower so that the, the mind and the emotions are more settled. Yoga does this. So I'm really what I'm encouraging is to have some kind of body practice. It can be really, really crucial for this whole process of transformation. It can, it can have a tremendous effect in quieting our minds. <coughs> Some of you have done Qigong, and I know that uh, recent experience in our Path of Engagement program that we had last time, we invited Tija Bell, who teaches Qigong at a lot of our Spirit Rock retreats, to actually work with this practice of kind of through these exercises of bringing the body energy down. And we did this twice a day quite often at the retreat, and we found I think it was almost universally found that when we did half an hour of that and then meditated, the mind was very, very different, much more settled. And so I invite that also, something to consider as a way of practicing, but something sort of a way to renew our practice. Can we have some kind of body practice? It might be to take a walk. It's anything which takes us into our bodies, because this culture keeps us in our minds tremendous amount. Some of us probably are on computers quite a part of the day. You know, how do we stay more in our bodies and keep our body, body energies down? I think ultimately what we're looking for is a kind of integration of our hearts, somewhat healed, our bodies, and then the, the qualities of the, the, the mind, the heart, and the spirit. So I think that we actually need practices for each of these areas. We need, I think, heart practices, emotional practices, sort of emotional uh, transformation practices. We need body practices. It can be modest. It can be just, I will do walking meditation and be in my body half an hour a day. And I think what this does is it opens us up for, it makes it possible really then to go into the deeper reaches, which actually are the qualities of mind which lead to the most fundamental renewal, when we actually can be with this beautiful open space of a, of a relatively pure heart, an open mind, and a, a body that feels radiant and luminous. And I know that we each have touched that. This is really the birthright that we, that we do this practice to move, to have that be more and more accessible to us, that, that deeper quality of our being which is really the source of our love and our wisdom and our compassion and our ability to make a difference in the world. And yet, to get there, we often need to work with some of these other areas, kind of at the same time that we're developing the mindfulness. But I wanted to mention that, because some of that got clearer for me, thanks to the bear. <laughs> Thank you. I'd like to invite any questions or reflections. Please, yes. I've been practicing for some time. Tonglen, a 
kind of children talks about yeah. when the anxiety or the fear comes up, to take the fear and the anxiety in rather yeah. than diverting yourself from it. Yeah. Now, what you're saying, though, is to go to uh, a place of love. Yeah. Um, rather than taking the fear in. Well, there are actually a number of different techniques that this is really a preview of working with fear. We can work with it a number of ways. Um, some of the ways we work with fear, and I think it depends on the state of our mind when the fear comes, how balanced we are. Whether it's a time for investigation, for transformation, or just uh, coming back to more balance and finding an antidote to the qualities. So I, I would actually name, those are three possible ways to work with fear. And there, there are different tools for each of them. The one that I was mentioning was, in a sense, an antidote. It's like, my mind is in fear. I'm somewhat out of balance. This thought has a lot of power. Let me come back to balance. And in that case, something like loving kindness is very helpful. Or something that, and I would call that an <coughs> antidote. The Tong Lun practice, in which we actually invite the fear to come in, and work with it in different ways. That I would call that more of a transformation technique. And all of these are valid, and we can use, and we can do that when we're relatively balanced. It might not be the middle of the night, you know. It might be when I notice some fear, I'm relatively balanced, and I say, "Let me." And we haven't done that practice here, so I'm apologize. But it's a bit. It's, it has some similarities with metta. It involves breathing in the difficult energies and breathing out as it were, more relief and openness. And that can be possible at certain, at certain times when we're relatively balanced. Similarly, when we're relatively balanced, we can work with fear and try to investigate it. Say, fear, I'm okay if you're here. I want to study you. I want to in investigate and see more clearly. And it might be that we actually, and it's actually that last, the investigation which can help us actually to transform the underlying pattern. So it actually, in the long run, I would say the investigation and the transformative practices that like one you're mentioning, in the long run, have more to do with freeing us. But the first one has to do with not letting us get so stuck or caught. Very important. And so we can think of those as three different tools to work with fear. That could be the basis for a whole talk to go into more detail on that. Should write that down. <laughs> yeah, Chris, you had a question. Uh, I have two questions. One is kind of a, a large one. I think. Um, you said that recognize the most basic nature and then focus on one point, stabilize it. And I wanted you to elaborate on that second point. Yeah. And the other question is getting back to the bear. Yeah. Is so. What about the next night? <laughs> what happened? <laughs> Oh, yeah. And how did you discern whether this was something dangerous that you were... Um, whether there was objective danger. Yeah. Good. Let me answer the last one first. Yeah, about three in the morning, a bear came and... <laughs> no, no. Just joking. Sorry. Um, what happened was uh, I did the loving kindness for a few hours and then I went to sleep. And for the other nights, 
no thoughts of the bear or fear came. <coughs> and if they came, they just came for a split second, and I went to loving kindness and just did it for like five minutes or one minute. So essentially, uh, nothing really came much after that first evening. It was interesting. You know, it was, and I, I really grew to love that particular spot. <laughs> You know, and, and was actually very comfortable and did not have any more thoughts. Because I knew, I knew that there wasn't really objective danger as far as I knew. You know, that uh, there hadn't been any other bear sighted other than this one, and it was not around. And that they generally, so I, my rational mind pretty much was at ease. And after that first night, I thought it was pretty much my own mind working. And so after that, it just didn't go anywhere. It was like it knew. You know, it knew if it went there, it's just going to get a bunch of loving kindness. <laughs> it's a, I, can't, I think it kind of, the, the fear thought just gave up hope. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? It didn't, didn't really come. And then you're, um, does that enough of the explanation there? Yeah, if, and if there was objective danger, then uh, I might have moved. Yeah, I mean... Okay, I won't go further into that. So, your your other question was? It was the second point. Focus on one point. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, in the context of our practice, I think it would be to... Um, it's really to have this focus <coughs> on what I'm doing. In, in the context of that practice, it's to... Um, is to somehow focus one's energy so that one essentially continually has the motivation to invoke and be near this quality of open awareness. In the context of our practice, that might mean to have this very simple focus, which I think we know if you've been on retreats, where it might the focus might be just to be my only purpose in life during this retreat is to be aware, is to be mindful, is to, it's just that, uh, that simplicity that I think it's helpful. And in daily life, it can mean to really, um, again, it's partly to be in touch with intention. What's my intention at this meeting? Can I set an intention? My intention might be to listen really carefully to people and try to be present in my body. Or it might be, I want to listen carefully and be compassionate in my responses. And what, uh, if, so if I could generalize from that text, it's to say there's a tremendous power which comes from really giving a focused intention for a day, for a meeting, <coughs> for an hour. That really is an intention which connects us with our deeper motivation. That's really what this is about. This technique is simply a way of making the deeper motivation real in daily life. Because if we don't do that, we just get distracted, you know? And we forget about our deeper motivation, we just, whatever, turn on the radio. <laughs> and that's not, of course, we can have our deeper motivation with the radio on. Um, but it, I think it's really about the power that comes from the practice of intention to have our deeper motivation be more alive in our daily lives. And it's not, it's, um, it's, not, it's not a hard technique to do, but it's hard to remember. Yeah. Yeah. 
there anything else? Please, yeah. Uh, I was just going to wanted to ask you about um, talking about the place of psychological healing, yeah, almost as if it were an adjunct to a Buddhist practice. Yeah, yeah. I think I think my my sense is: does everyone hear the question or understand? It's really a question about uh, what's the relationship of we call it psychological and emotional healing to traditional Buddhist practice. I believe that you know, maybe in 20, 40 years, we'll have a more integrated sense of the practices which really work in our culture. Um, we cannot really approach practice as if we were Asian monks and nuns. And so we, and we also have particular problems that the Buddha didn't talk about, as well as gifts. I won't, don't want to have it just be on one side. You know, it's like that theme of judgments that we're doing this uh, workshop on. I think the, the strongly judgmental mind is something that has mystified many Asian teachers when they first come to this culture. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think it's actually spreading you know, with globalization and so forth. It, it will soon be very well known. I think it is in some of the Asian cultures. But it's, I remember the Dalai Lama once had a question from someone who said, I don't believe that I deserve love. Your comment, Dalai Lama. (laughs) (laughs) And the Dalai Lama did not get it. This was incomprehensible to him at that time. This was 30 years ago. Now he gets it. But at that time, he went back and forth with his translator trying to see if he misunderstood (laughs) something. For about three or four minutes, I actually was there at that that, uh, discussion. And then, he, and then he said, with uncharacteristic Dalai Lama firmness uh, and almost forcefulness and lack of apparent, you know, obvious compassion, he said, you are simply wrong about that. Mm-hmm. You deserve love. But it was that that mind state was not something he knew well. Mm-hmm. And so my sense is, and this is something that we talked about at the retreat, this very interesting and innovative Tibetan teacher, Sotni Rinpoche, he says... Traditionally, in Tibetan practice, there are preliminaries which one does, which involve prostration. Some of you know these practices. Prostration and visualization, he says, no. For Westerners, the preliminary practices before you, go, before you can go really deeply in meditation are to, to basically develop more love and get your bodies together <laughs> and get your energy system together. So, so it would be like, we would, it's almost like a, a certain kind of preliminary work is to do a certain amount of psychological healing and working with the energy body to, so we're not all over the place, so our bodies are somewhat more settled and we can be in our bodies and we're not so tossed around by day-to-day events. And that could be seen, maybe we'll have a system in 20 or 50 years where it's kind of understood for people in our culture, we need to do that first. Or we need to do that maybe, I mean, it's not like it's totally separate because one can do a lot of this work using mindfulness and loving kindness. They're beautiful adjuncts. But we need a certain amount of attention to those areas in ways that are not there in the ancient systems. So I think we're, in the long run, we'll have a, you know, a, ideally the best of both worlds and some very alive dialogue happening you know, and I'm, I'm actually hoping to have some time in the next uh, year to write a book on working with judgments, 
that would sort of systematize some of what we've been exploring and I think would very <coughs> consciously be a contribution to finding that kind of balance of the different tools, psychological, bodily, mindfulness, wisdom teachings, that, are, that really let us develop well. So it's a, it's a beautiful, important theme. So thank you for your question. And Barbara, I think I have to, could you ask okay. your question uh, after we finish? Because I, I want to, because of the time, I think I want to close now. And so let's just take a minute or so, 30 seconds or a minute to finish. I really thank you for your attention and for welcoming me back after my time with the bear. <laughs> and your, your empathy and compassion. And so let's just let whatever was helpful from the morning be there, and particularly if there are intentions for renewing your practice, which come out of the morning discussion and, and the talk for your own practice. Let those intentions for renewal be present for a little while. It might simply be to ask, what's my next step? What next step would be helpful for me? So we close by remembering that we do this practice, this exploration, not just for ourselves, but also for others. And we offer what's been helpful or fruitful or inspiring or energizing from the morning out beyond the boundaries of these walls, out for the benefit of all beings. Hi to Sylvia. <laughs> I'll see her next Monday, actually. And I'll see you in two weeks. Unless I make a small cameo appearance next week. <laughs> so thank you so much for your attention. Donald, yeah. are there a lot of places like Spirit Rock around the Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.